Welcome to Jenny and Paul's Sellout, the podcast, episode number 23. This is Paul Reese Mandel, one half of your sellout team. Jenny Benevento will join me in just a moment. In this episode, we catch up on all that's passed since episode 22, which is actually quite a lot. I moved from uh, Chicago to Portland, Oregon. Jenny has toured both coasts, and uh, we've gone to some conferences and stuff. Jenny even went on a podcast cruise, so we've got a lot to talk about. Then we delve into the question of why folks who are doing it DIY are still obsessed with old media standards. Are podcasters really just doing it until something better comes along, like a TV show or book deal? Hey, where's my book deal? Before we dive in, I do have to note that there were some undiagnosable audio problems with the recording. Um, I've managed to fix them enough so that I don't think it's too noticeable, and I don't think it's too annoying. But if you hear some slight kind of pulsing in the uh, audio, that's what I've been working hard to fix. Um, Took me a little while, and there is an improvement, but it is not up to our usual high quality audio um but i hope nevertheless that you enjoy keep listening jenny jenny i think this is the show (laughs) i think we're in the show already i think i i think i just i think i accidentally just hit record so so hello hello paul wow so um you know i uh, it's this podcast absence man it's it's uh People have been asking me about it. Yeah, I know. Um, They're like, "Oh my God, are you done with the show?" And I said, "No." No, in fact, right as we as we go as we record this one, um, there are two in the can. So, <laughs> and then so this will be the next one, but they'll, they'll come out in quick succession here. Um, <clears throat> to, so to, much show, people so will be like overwhelmed by show. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> It's gonna be like, yeah, it's it's gonna be like having having ten episodes of Nerdist come out in one week, you know. Except just... we sort of like we had a show where we, uh, no spoilers, um, sort of told people what other podcasts to listen to, which I think sure. ideally the idea was then you could listen to those while we were not doing a show. Mm-hmm. But but now people just have a lot of podcasts to listen to. That's good. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. Um, and and. Part of that, of course, uh, part of the reason why we, we had a little bit of a hiatus is that um, I moved away from Chicago to Portland, and um, as one does, I uh, grossly underestimated how much time I would energy I would have <laughs> yeah, to get right. anything done in the interim. So uh, I, I've now been in Portland for a month, and in some ways it feels like just a week, in other ways it feels like a year, and I... Um, my house starts to look like a house now. How about you, Jenny? What have you been up to in the intervening uh, I have been time? on vacation, essentially. Um, I have been out of town a lot. Um, I went to California, Southern California, um, for a long period of time. And then uh, for both Comic-Con, just to hang out with some friends. And I met Yakov Smirnov. And I met uh, lots of people, Roseanne Barr and William Shatner and lots of friends and ate some delicious food and then realized how much I hate Southern California, though I love lots of people who live there. Um, It's just not my bag. And then 
I went to North Carolina and Georgia and Virginia and Tennessee on a road trip where I listened to a lot of bluegrass. And then and and I found this new thing where if I say if people ask you where you're from and I tell them where I'm from, which is Chicago, they instantly give me their opinion on um Obama, which is um not not a response I really want. <laughs> like, I, like I've never thought of that as a thing that people would do. Like I like I don't. If I ask someone where they're from, that would not I would not tell them about their political candidates. I don't so know, when they say Georgia, you don't you don't suddenly go off on Jimmy Carter. No, yeah, it's like it's very strange to me. It's like well, and I could see one. I could see someone saying, "Oh, our president's from there." Like that that would be like a thing I could understand. But oh, here are my opinions, my deep opinions on our president. Both positive and negative. I got them um, in Ireland last year. Only uh, very, very fewer opinions, right? But definitely got the oh Obama, and then you is know. that because you're from America or because you're from Chicago? No, it was a Chicago. It was, it was definitely Chicago. like we know Obama is from Chicago, and then you know usually followed up by yo, you know my my dad's cousin, you know, <laughs> oh right, is a cop in Chicago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, yeah, or a bartender of yeah. some sort. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was a weird experience, which I'm now considering just telling people I'm from somewhere else. Um, and then um, I just went on Maximum Fun as a podcast network um, that produces a lot of podcasts, and they had a cruise so um, with a, a comedy and music festival on a cruise ship. Um, so I went on that. Um, it's called BoatParty.biz, and it was awesome. And then I came home and promptly, like, just laid in bed for a week because it was just a lot of stuff. So aside from the Internet celebrities uh, on the on the cruise, probably the most well-known of which is probably, what, John Hodgman? Yeah, I don't know if he even counts as an Internet celebrity because he's, he's sort of a TV celebrity. Right, right. He's like a niche TV celebrity. Um how, how about how many people besides the internet celebrities were on the boat? It's a good question. So there were about there were two nights of comedy, which was about four or five comedians each, um, and then there was one night of music, which I think had like four or, uh, or five musicians. So probably like fifteen to twenty, I would say. I could look at the boatparty.biz website and tell you um, offhand. A, a lot of people canceled it the last minute because I guess for comedians. You know, if you get signed or something to some to or your show has to go back into production or you get asked to do a late night show, you kind of have to, you know, you're an independent contractor. So um, a few people kind of had to leave and come, you know, a few people left and a few people came in sort of at the last moment. And and uh, who are some of the comedians? Um, Kurt Braunohler. Uh, who does uh, a lot of stuff with Kristen Schaal? And he's um, got a show on IFC, I think. He does. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Show. He's hilarious. That's what I know about him. Um, Rhea Butcher, uh, Wyatt Cenac, who's on um, who's on The Daily Show. Um, Cameron Esposito, who was a Chicago and is now living in LA, um, and like the night, <laughs> like a couple nights after we came back, was on. Uh, the Late Show with Craig Ferguson and Jay, Jay Leno was the guest, and it's actually a really amazing episode that I highly suggest everyone watch because um, Jay Leno is like in love with Cameron Esposito, and he calls her the future of comedy, which is awesome. 
Um, John Hodgman, I don't know if you consider him a comedy person. Uh, Nadia Camille, who I did not know beforehand, who is a mm-hmm. British comedian. And Josie Long, also um, British. Um, both of them were really great. I guess they're both fairly famous in Britain, but I did not know anything about them before this. Um, Eugene Meerman, who a lot of people know, I guess, as uh, he's on Bob's Burgers. And he was also on Fly the Concords. Yeah, that's true. Um, Jonah Ray, who is the Bing guy, <laughs> among other things. Um, Jasper Red, who I have no, I don't know anything about, um, who was very funny though. Um, Nick Thune, who that's I don't a lot. Know. That's a lot of damn comedians. I know, right? I'm telling you. And uh, Scott Simpson from You Look Nice Today. So I don't know if he counts as a podcaster or a comedian. It was very hard because on the boat, you know, like we had our own special like badges and stuff. And so other people on the boat would be like, what is this for? And you'd have to be like, uh, conference. Like it's hard, like it's hard to explain what you were at. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, just a bunch of comedians. I don't know. So, yeah. So there were a lot of comedians. Okay. Um, and so the, uh, so the podcasters are primarily comedians then. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there weren't really any podcasters other than um, so. I think a lot of those, a lot, uh, several of those comedians do have podcasts on right, of course, the Maximum Fun Network. So I think that's how the podcast. But it really wasn't podcast based at all, which sort of shocked me that there wasn't more podcasty stuff. Right. Okay. And then uh, musicians. Um, it was um. John Darneal of Mountain Goats, um, Dan Deacon, um, John Roderick of The Long Winters. Nick Thune also plays guitar during his comedy, so I don't know again. It's a little bit. And John Hodgman played his um, ukulele. So, Oh, and um, uh, uh, Nellie Mackay. I don't know who Nellie McKay is. Nellie McKay is a delight. I didn't know who she was either, but everyone on this boat knew who she was. And I was like, really? This is the only person in the... No one... It seemed like most people on the boat were there for the comedians and no one knew the musical guests at all. And I was pretty much there oppositely. Like I... I like all the musicians. And the only one I did not know was Nellie McKay and everyone knew who she was. Hmm. Um, She sort of does both ukulele and piano and she sings kind of old-timey jazz hits and her own sort of, um, I would say, I guess, irreverent, funny, but political songs. Okay. She seems delightful. Mm-hmm. I highly suggest her. All right. There was no one I didn't like. That's cool. Uh, which is cool. I feel like, uh, you know, obviously it was a very pro crowd. But, yeah, there was no one I was like, oh, man, I didn't like their stuff. So, and then you're like hanging out with these folks because you're all cooped yeah. up on a boat together. Yeah, we're all cooped up on a boat. So, I mean, there was a little bit, I mean, like John Hodgman being probably the most famous person had like some, always had like a gaggle of nerdy girls around him at all times. So <laughs> if you're if you're trying to get at John Hodgman, that might be a little harder. Um, but yeah. And, uh, is, most, is he single? So, so, no, you know. he has a wife. <laughs> Huh? I, I was, he has a wife. I he has was a not, wife. I was not right. suggesting so, he was doing anything on tour. No, no, I wasn't suggesting. I was just thinking, though, if he was. I mean, he's, right. probably, he's probably like kicking himself just a little bit inside going, wow. Yeah. If right. I had known like. That this is what was going to happen. Yeah, right? you know, like 10 years ago that I would be able to get so much nerd, nerd. girl tail. I know. 
I have to say, I did not see a lot of um, celebrity, non-celebrity hooking up. Uh, and maybe that was just, I was not really paying a ton of attention. Um, but yeah, I would have expected more, a little bit more of that. Well, especially but it, comedians are dogs, typically. Right. I mean, at least, <laughs> at least you know, mo- I mean, that's a stereotype is that especially road comedians, um, you know, so rather than, you know, guys who, you know, who have steady gigs like on sitcoms or something, but guys who pretty much live, you know, nightclub to nightclub, um, known for being dogs. But I don't know, the maximum fun trip is a little less dirty i guess well no it's more that i think that you can't leave the person right so like you're gonna see them for the next three days right so 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 basically yeah that's right so it's super awkward right it's super awkward or you know you might yeah you might have to see this person you you might be stuck with like a a a a wife or uh or husband for the three days that you're there well several of them do seem to be attached and some of them it seemed like they're significant others were with them but uh um yeah i i didn't see uh there was like one mention during the music show of like i'm gonna play this song today to you all of you and to one special lady tonight in my cabin um but uh other than that uh i would say that i saw one comedian sort of like dancing with a lady but i don't know if that lady came with him or all not right. well i, I mean you know, i find that to be uh, I, I find that to be reassuring in human nature or at least reassuring in the uh in the maximum fun ethos yeah they totally could have hooked up with more people oh, to be fair they could have been hooking up with more people and just been super discreet sure well discretion or, is fine <laughs> or like i was not paying much attention which is also true because i wasn't like stalking these people so that's good and, and of course jesse jesse thorne was there right jesse thorne was also there yeah um the, the, the master of ceremonies for all intents and purposes true. the man behind uh, the maximum fun empire yeah so there was actually this was the event in my lifetime where the only event in my lifetime i think where um men were far more dressed up than women <laughs> i was gonna say i mean because jesse thorne is known for being uh sartorily uh, inclined right, right? he's natty all the time just tuxedo time and he runs like a, he runs like a men's menswear blog doesn't he right as well? exactly so there's so he runs a menswear blog so um and then also uh John Roderick loves dress up, so he had like three different kinds of tuxedos. And then Scott Simpson also has several tuxedos, so it was like tuxedo time all the time. And then Hodgman has his own style of dress, I would guess, as well. Kind of like, I don't know. He did not dress up that much. Hmm. It was really hot. Like, I can't underline how hot it was during the day, at least. Right. Well, you were in the Caribbean, right? Yeah, in the Bahamas. Yeah. I'm really confused still, and this makes me feel so American, how um, how the Bahamas and the Caribbean, like when you, I, I don't know whether the Bahamas like are considered part of the Caribbean, because in Caribbean guidebooks, the Bahamas are not in them. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm very ignorant as to how, I mean, like even on the boat, people are like, we're going to NASA. What is the country that NASA is in? Right. <laughs> the bahamas okay is the bahamas a country like it was very no one was there for the for the actual scheduled stops i would say mm-hmm. that yeah i i don't i honestly don't i don't know i'm, I'm trying to look at a map and it definitely know, right? the bahamas right is is actually closer to uh well it's about as close to florida as cuba is only it's much smaller and further north so maybe that's yeah. not the Caribbean, right? Maybe yeah, that's yeah, not the Caribbean nothing. Sea. 
I know nothing about it. Yeah, no, no, no that makes sense. Despite the, having been there. Looking at the map right now, uh, the Caribbean Sea is is officially labeled to the south of Cuba, which is the largest island there, and on and to the south of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. So I would guess that, yes, it is probably true that north of Cuba, north of Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, it's just the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, and they take American money there, and they speak English. <clears throat> so... Well, that makes it easy. It was very easy. <laughs> and they serve vodka that tastes like rubbing alcohol. That was my other experience. Yum. Yeah, it was. I was like, this is poison. I'm not drinking this. Was it local or? I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm not. I was like, I'm not. This is not a thing that I'm for human consumption. Um. So, yeah. I highly suggest. Well, so. I guess I feel like uh, I've been on one other cruise, and before this, I, and I say even continuing this, it was interesting to go on a different cruise line, um, but I feel like I'm 80, 75% pro cruises, and whatever the other percent is, uh, 25%, is that what it is? I don't know, math. Um, they think they're just the worst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Right. I mean, I guess it's really going to – is this – maybe this last cruise demonstrates uh, – I've never been on one. Um, it probably really depends on who else is there on the boat and what and what activities there are. That sounds like the real – Or if you just want to do no activities. Like, right. I think if you want to do zero activities and just, like, not talk to anyone, mm-hmm. I think a cruise is a really good idea. So why do it on a boat as opposed to just Because go no to... one can contact you. Okay. So, so it's really the – contact you. Got it. Right. It's, it's, it's part of the whole, like, t- truly unplugged thing, which is, you know, you have to have more self-discipline to do at a, uh, at a, at a land resort because, uh, you know, your cell phone probably still works there. Well, and it's not just you. It's other people can call you. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I may go. We should, you know, I, I would love to think that we could, uh, you know, have a, have a sellout cruise. Sometime. <laughs> Sometime. Um, yeah, other people, I, a lot of people had been on the Joko cruise, of course. Um, that's, the that's Colton Jonathan cruise. Colton cruise. Okay, I didn't know he had his own cruise, too. Oh, yeah, he did. This was sort of copied from his cruise. I think his cruise, though, now is so big that like it might be the whole boat, which I think would have been weirder and not as awesome. Mm-hmm. Because as we talked about before we started recording, I think... Um, I don't know. A smaller event is just more awesome because, like, you kind of. I feel like I knew a lot of people there mm-hmm. by like first name basis, and there was a lot more interaction, like normal people with the celebrities, as opposed to like, oh my god, you're on this pedestal. Right, and I guess if you're, you know, John Hodgman or John Roderick or or any of the other stated people um, to participate in this. I guess you, you have to be down with like the idea that you're 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 hanging out like that it's not uh I think, yeah you could hide in your room i mean there was some element of like all the famous people sort of hung out together which mm-hmm. i mean made sense to me well, it's uh, and, and then partly it's, it's just because they know each other yeah they're all kind of friends, friends and a lot of them go on cruise ships together um but there were clearly some people who were way less into like hanging out with people and those people made it fairly clear um i mean i think uh, and Eugene, so the 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 boat was supposed to have uh, Mark Marin, and he had to cancel because they were 
he his show got picked up again. Oh, for a second season. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, we had said this privately, my friend and I, but like Eugene Merriman was like, can you imagine if Mark Maron were on this boat? Like he would be an anxiety hell. And it's totally true because like people can come up to you at every, every moment and be like, hey, let's talk about this thing you did the th- 13 years ago, you know, because yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think most people were cool enough to not, but, you know, you apply alcohol and people board on a boat. Well, and Marin's, uh, Marin's thing is being all out, right? Talking about all these elements of his life, being very honest and forthright, which means that all these people know things about you that, you know... Like your you worst un- things. Right, and, and in a way that <laughs> even for, like, a celebrity, except for maybe a really big celebrity, right, who is, right. like, in the gossip magazines, um, you know, even, you know, it's the kind of things that, like, people, I know things about Mark Maron that my closest friends might not even ever know about me, you know, and... and and but yet all these people who know this and and really want to connect with you because they really connected you with because that but you know nothing about them. And but I have just... to say that's true of a few people on the boat though too. It was like I'm sure. that's that's true of John Darniel. Like John Darniel is like very open about all the bad shit that happened in his life. Yeah, I, I, except I mean I agree. Except that it's not his stock and trade. So oh, I I would disagree. That really, is his stock and trade. All of his songs are about being like abused. Right. I, I guess I still think that there's a, the diff- there's a difference between writing about it as in, 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 in like in, in terms of songs and stuff versus like sure. I do a podcast two times a week where at least for 15 minutes I talk about everything that's going on. That's I do true. a stand up uh, routine. I have a yeah, TV yeah. show that is about my life. Yeah, um, no, that's true. I, I agree with you. You know, and, and so, uh, yeah, uh, I could I could I could see that. Um, sure. Okay. Well, you know, maybe someday we'll be able to pull off as as we as we uh, sure, ramp up hope. ramp up the uh, the empire here. I did um, have a person who said to me, "Are you Jenny?" And I said, "Yes." I mean, obviously, I if you don't know what I look like, I have pink hair. So I was the only person with pink hair. It wasn't really hard to narrow it down. But they really, you were the only. I, I, I'm actually surprised. <laughs> I would have expected a little bit more, but um, I, I agree. There was someone with blue hair, but I was the only person with pink hair. So that made me very easy uh, targets. But someone said, um, are you Jenny? And I said, yes. And they said, I listened to your podcast. So cool. That was pretty awesome. It's very nice. Um, yeah, I've been uh, I've been hanging out in Portland for the last month and month, five weeks, I guess. Uh, you know, the move was fairly une- uneventful. Luckily, it just happened. I well, had, it took a really long time to get your stuff. Took two weeks. Yep, um, and that's what happens when you move halfway across the country with movers, because what they do is they come and pick up your stuff in just you know like a moving truck, but then they move it onto a tractor trailer, and they don't want to take it to you until the tractor trailer is full. So they gang together, you know, uh, people going in the same general direction, and apparently not a lot of people were moving west out of the Chicago I region. Hard to believe. Yeah, at least during that that period, and we moved off peak. So I guess if you uh, if we had moved at the end of the month, as opposed no, to the beginning of the month, uh, it would have been more likely to have been faster. I was told, but also they would have charged us more, huh? Because they charge more for they said because most people need to be into their new place like around the first. Where if you move in those last two weeks of the month, um, it's more expensive. They have more traffic. And there's peak pricing, but you get your stuff a little faster, typically. 
Um, I moved at the beginning of the month off peak, so it was cheaper, which doesn't mean cheap. And uh, but it took two weeks, and 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 part of it was uh, uh, the they went to Seattle right before they came to us in Portland at a load, and it was somebody who had moved into you know some new like uh, condo um, in like the north end of downtown where apparently they couldn't get the tractor trailer in anywhere. Oh yeah, that was my issue in New York. So they had like a like two days to get things unloaded so they delayed them and then um the guys who got when they got to our place were pretty tired and frustrated <laughs> and really <laughs> and, and not upset with their bosses because they're like could they basically they said you know they couldn't look at google maps and figure this out ahead of time right exactly. <laughs> the guy who lives there couldn't have told us um so but uh we are our uh, uh we presented much less of a challenge we live on the ground floor our uh, our uh, door Don't opens pretty much to the uh, <laughs> to to the sidewalk, so uh, it was pretty simple. But yeah, they they, they took the full two weeks. They, they so gave us a two I, week window. So um, since we had a podcast with your wife discussing West Coast type of people, East Coast type of people, mm-hmm. Midwest type of people, I have been thinking about it. So do you feel like after your month, do you feel your West Coast type of people? Um, am I? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what I am. Uh, <laughs> I would say yes. I, I yet do not know. I mean, I've always been comfortable here, and particularly I've been comfortable in Portland. And I not and I I we, we were in Seattle for a day, and it's funny because I I talked a bunch to a guy from Seattle at at a conference I was just at here, and he was you know from Seattle, you know, so grew up there, works works in IT there, um, you know, does like app development and things like that. And um, to me, he was really Seattle in that he was much less gregarious <laughs> than most of the people there. Friendly. Like, we talked for a while, and he was very nice, but definitely not gregarious and, and definitely, like, you know, really liked Seattle and could tell me all the reasons why he couldn't tell, live other places. And I feel like, to me, that's Seattle, right? And when and even we, we when uh, Ellen and I were up in Seattle uh, last week to pick up her visa, she went to Russia, and uh, you know, just even going to like the restaurants and going to a bar, it was different than being in Portland. Um, Portlanders, it's yeah, I think, yeah, Portlanders, and you know, I think this may also be a function of how many, how many people have moved to Portland and how much Portland has grown in the last like 15 years. Portlanders are actually more outgoing, a little more like friendly, you know, and I do think there's a, they have a little bit of that Midwestern friendliness in which, you know, they're not going to be not friendly kind of thing. Um, but I have found it like people super easy to talk to and like really like portlanders are really kind of laid back and uh pretty friendly by and large um in, in a certain fairly outgoing sort of way that also doesn't come off like fake and smiley you know i do feel, i feel like someone gave seattle lights the idea that because they're a quote-unquote real city because they're a big city i yeah. mean i think that's the difference is that they often uh site depending mm-hmm. on you know um that they have to be like business-like or <laughs> <Right>. something <laughs> you know it's very funny to me because i totally agree i feel like uh they're just, it's just fair it's a lot more businessy yeah kind of weird. right and, and, and even and... in not not and i don't mean like let's talk about banks i mean like 
everyone's behavior seems more business. No, to keep, everyone's a little bit more at arm's length is the way I would put it, right? It's just, it's fine, friendly, like, you know, cordial, but a little bit more at arm's length, you know? And, and but, you know, even so we went into like this little like cafe uh, restaurant, not very far from Pike's Market because that's where the visa office was. So totally, you know, within the tourist area where I would expect people to be kind of, you know, a little bit more uh, surly and, uh, and overwhelmed. And they were still just super, I mean, you know, in, in Seattle, they were nice. I mean, of course, the place is called Biscuit Bitch. So, you know, maybe that is itself a uh, filter, but uh, <laughs> it was very good. But, uh, you know, and they were still, I mean, they were nice and they were cordial, but it was a little, it's still at a little different tone than what I've been experiencing in Portland for the last uh, five weeks. But, you know, here in Portland, man, you, 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 it's only a small percentage of the people you meet who are native Portlanders. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it is, and I, you know, I'm, and I'm clearly one of them, uh, very much a, uh, a city that has become, I think, to some extent, over overrun with uh, migrants, <laughs> cultural migrants, so to speak, um, who who have been sort of welcomed and integrated. But it, but you know, I think, you know, that is part of the city. And people move to Portland more likely for culture than necessarily for a job or for economic reasons. Whereas I think if you live, I'm guessing, in Seattle or San Francisco. It used to be you moved to San Francisco for cultural reasons. Now, because it's so damn expensive, most people are moving there because they got high-tech jobs or got some fancy job. And I think Seattle is similar in yeah, that a lot of the people who have moved to Seattle in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years, moved there for you know high-tech, Microsoft, Amazon, etc., well, and, and that that adds it, and that's sort of a different reason, and it gives you and it gives you a different lifestyle, I think. And I think you're a Portlander who a needed a job and could not find one in Portland, so you moved to Seattle because it's like the compromise, right? Or you want to move back to Portland, but you need a job, so you move to Seattle first, right? And and but I think because of people who moved to Portland for its culture, um, that's why it's there seems to be a fairly. There's this, you know, it's a big kind of do-it-yourself scene, and not just do-it-yourself in the in the kind of uh, more anarchistic sort of way, but you know, in terms of small business startup, you know, funky restaurants, you know, new distilleries, things like that. Um, because you get here because you're here for the culture and you like what's going on, but now you got to kind of put something together. Um, it, it's inter- I went, so I've been to two conferences in the last uh, three weeks, and the first one I went to is called Tech Fest Northwest. Um, which was an adjunct to Music Fest Northwest. And Tech Fest, this is just the second year they've had it. Music Fest has been going on for well over a decade. And they're, they're both sort of South by southwest E, and they are fairly explicit about sort of saying they want to create kind of like an old school South by Southwest experience in Portland. You know, so like with the Music Fest, it's multiple venues, multiple shows. You get a wristband and you can go and... You know, when things fill up, you can't get in. But in my experience, nothing filled up. So it was no problem getting in. I got, I managed to get a press pass, so I didn't have to pay, which is kind of nice. Sweet. Um, and, of course, the, the tech part was much more expensive, so even more so. And the tech part was fine. It was really just more like a regular conference. It was two, you know, two rooms at OMSI, the uh, Museum of Science and Industry, with, you know, panels and talks all day long and maybe a little social hour afterwards. Um, and it was fine. But it, the funny thing about this is so, mu- so much of it, of course, was about Portland-based, you know, tech startups or like music-y, culturally, culture-like tech startups and things like that. 
But there was definitely a vibe that was brought out explicitly saying, you know, Portlanders don't be afraid to go big. Like maybe our problem is that we always, you know, we, we, we don't want to sell out so we don't go big <laughs> kind of kind of vibe. You know, don't be afraid to become Amazon was sort of a thing. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't much have an opinion on it. Um, <clears throat> but that was definitely part of the talk. Um, and it, it was fine. I've never been to South by Southwest, but, you know, as, from a tech conference standpoint, um, you know, it wasn't particularly full. <laughs> so it, it and I felt like it was just a lot like other conferences that I've been to where you sit in a big room that's a little dark and you watch people talk and maybe they show you stuff. So, and fun. was it mostly locals or much more locals? Yeah. By Northwest, do you mean was it people also from Seattle or was it? It didn't seem like it to me. It mm-hmm. seemed like it seemed like there were there were people from outside of Portland who had been invited, you know, invited to speak or right. or, or were there to sell something. Um, and and so there definitely were some folks not from Portland, but it seemed to me like that was overwhelmingly Portland. Like they have, you know, and again, it's just the second year of the tech part of it. And with regard to Music Fest, you know, the thing is, is it happens not too long before or after Bumper Shoot up in Seattle, which is an enormous kind of Lollapalooza type of affair. And there's just so many Music Fests now, I think it's difficult to sort of replicate like the uh, South by Southwest thing. Although I definitely got the impression uh, from Twitter and from press accounts that there are plenty of people who definitely came to Music Fest Northwest from out of town, you know. To, to specifically see to get the experience see certain bands and, and and certain lineups is it a professional music i mean is it aimed at professionals in the music industry no right so okay. the music fest is pretty much just shows right okay yeah so i don't get the sense that it has that same kind of because south by southwest part of it was always industry right so, it was it was inte- i mean the yeah. whole intention was industry and then people just started coming to the point where i think now industry like can't go Right. Um, I think it's more like, um, oh, the name is escaped me right now. There's there's a new festival in North Carolina in like Raleigh. Oh, Hopscotch. Hopscotch, yeah. I think it's more like Hopscotch in that way. Although although I guess Music Fest is Northwest has been going on again for more than a decade. Yeah. And and it was good. I, I saw some good shows. Um, I, I felt old because I got really tired of standing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know. So it, and that was fun. I quite enjoyed it. And it was nice to it was nice to kind of have the music and the um and the tech stuff kind of mixed together. And then I went to as we were talking a little bit before I started recording, I went to XOXO Fest, which um doesn't present itself as a South by Southwest alternative. But I think as you mentioned to me before it totally is, does. is <laughs> it well it does without being explicit, right? Right. You know, without actually saying it. Uh and uh is you know very much more about internet celebrities of sorts. Uh but the real ethos and it's an ethos I'm down with is for people who are making things. And it can be making things online, it can be making things in a Kickstarter model or like the cards against humanity guys were there for instance so it's a big emphasis on tabletop games and and video games um you know but by and large uh you know that's it um and xoxo unlike say uh, a tech fest or other festivals is not open to just anybody who can uh who can uh put in a credit card number um so don't ask me why i got in but uh they do ask you when you when you sign up um they ask you to to very briefly say you know, what do you do and, you know, what do you make? 
and what is something you're really proud of yeah and uh (laughs) exactly um and so that you know and they said you know and, and they said in the opening uh not plenary but kind of just opening speeches uh that's you know they use that really as a filter and they said so they said enough people in, in a lot of ways just simply don't fill it out or you know don't put anything really useful any useful information in and that's a huge filter right there so they that passed that they don't really have to filter people very much until they, they reach you know till everything is full and they said in that way it's also not just a race meaning you know kind of like how uh certain other festivals have become or things like uh Apple's WWDC, where it's whoever can enter their credit card information in the first, you know, minute and 30 seconds that yeah. registration opens. Well, I do think it is. I mean, I do like the idea. I We talked a little bit about how it seems kind of exclusive, but I do like the idea that, like, you know, there's all these sort of long tail events that could support themselves in a very small mm-hmm. function. And we sort of, you know, danced around the idea that only they're only really worth it if they're small because you can talk to everyone you can there is this uh function where you can talk to people who you deem a celebrity or whose work you really like um which in a larger event would not be possible and would seem really weird and awkward um but i guess and i talked about this a little bit with people on the cruise i guess it's funny to me though that even though we all know that and we all know that like that's things we enjoy it's still there's still this like compulsory thing um for conferences and for events to make it the biggest possible event ever and not to make it small and so it's it's really interesting to me like like when talking to other people on this this event um that you know once in a while people would say like oh does anyone podcast and i said yeah and the first thing most people would ask was how many listeners do you have Mm-hmm. And I have no idea. Right. <laughs> the answer. I'm like, I have no idea. It's not relevant to like why we do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's it's interesting to me that there still is this, com- even though we've broken out of this old media sort of standard and a lot of the content of these conferences is the old media standard of doing things is broken and it's never going to work. And it, the only things that make money now are things that appeal to small devoted groups of people um yeah it's still like the striving that everyone is doing and i just don't know how to get out of that or like why that's happening you know it's interesting because you're right i I, it's it's it is difficult to get out of and you know america well sure it's because of america absolutely (laughs) um well it's also because it's because of america and it's because you know people want to be successful right you know and what is it's difficult to write your own um definition of success and also it's even more difficult i think to write your own definition of success when you're working in in basically a media role right when you're working around something which you are trying to either sell to people or you know gather an audience it's you know, we grow up with being inculcated with the idea that it's only it's only worthwhile, it's only successful if you are platinum seller or what or everything, right? And while and, and you know, and so there are certainly counter narratives, right? You know, which sort of arose with uh, punk and DIY culture in the eighties and nineties, but even then. 
it was still about success and about audience. It was just sort of accepting a, a different number, right? So, you know, if you are uh, Fugazi and you're Ian MacKay, and, and I don't mean to project this onto him so much as look at the, the narrative around him, you know, it's interesting because, oh my gosh, they still sell thousands and thousands of records and turn a profit, et cetera, et cetera, without ever being on the billboard charts or, or releasing a music video. It's not interesting, you know, to an extent if they didn't sell that many records, but we're still in business, you know? Um, so it's such a dominant and domineering narrative that it's difficult not to get caught up on it. Secondarily, of course, if you're hoping to make a living, um, so much <laughs> of it is still based upon advertising, which really sure. requires big numbers. Yeah, but I mean, I guess like obviously these small events are breaking even, or they wouldn't be oh, happening. Well, um, no, the events, sure, these events, fine. But I mean, you were the sort people of people at the event. Yeah, yeah. I it, mean, exactly. Well, so I mean, it is an interesting thing because I mean, it was a very good counterpoint, I think, for me to go to Comic Con um, in San Diego, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it was based in comics years and years and years ago, but has pretty much wholly been taken over by the major studios, and so it's like where they release information about the new batman movie and so it's all um, pop it's basically it's all popular pop culture, culture. Yeah. and like actually if you're trying to get to things that are about comics there's just no one in the room like i sat in a room of maybe 30 people with you know the five best comic book artists and writers giving a panel and like there was no one in that room and the entire it was just it's bewildering right mm-hmm. um so And that's an interesting example to me as a counterpoint because it's a situation where they did sell out in a way that made it like the best, the biggest, best, most well-funded conference. I mean, it's like studios put millions of dollars into it. They put – they make experiences that will only last for like three days for, you know, new shows that come out. It's basically industry-wise where like all the big information about TV shows comes out. And um, it's a totally counter or parallel purpose to what the conference was actually about. And so no no one actually goes to it for comics anymore. And so it's sort of interesting that, I mean, again, this is not exactly a negative uh, example of selling out because I think they totally accomplished their goals. Like tons of people have a great time and go to this conference and just are psyched and sort of like your discussion of the XOXO experience, everyone seemed real psyched to be there. Mm-hmm. And I was not. I was kind of like, well, but... Um, but it is it is so contrary to these other very small um, conferences where they are focusing on such a small interest group and making a small amount of money for that... for those people involved. Mm-hmm. Um and the other option being like let's blow it up as wide as possible but then the actual mission of the of the org is like sort of obliterated right well and that is really always the the tension because i think and, and not just with the money aspect but when you create something and you think it's valuable and and, and often if it's message driven or value driven 
there's a sense in which you want to expose more people to the message or the value, right? Whether it's culture or sometimes it's political or a mix of that. And so to some extent, you know, growth is part of your ethos. You know, it's evangelical, if you will, in many cases. So, you know, I've been in non-commercial radio for 20 years, you know, and it, in a lot of ways, if you're creating non-commercial radio that you really believe is great and you care about in a lot of cases you're it's because you are broadcasting culture music news that you think more people should hear so of course you want a bigger audience right even if not for the itself and even if you you know even though audience obviously helps your um, non-commercial station go because you have you know, more people who are willing to, you know, donate and keep it going. But let's just say, put that aside and say, let's just assume that you have enough audience to keep the operation running. There's still that evangelical aspect. We want more people to know about this kind of jazz or this kind of new indie rock, or we want more people to to be hip to uh, democracy now or, or other, you know, news that, that they don't otherwise hear. So, I mean, you, it's a tension, I think, not just in the sort of uh, economic aspect, but, but as well in, in the uh, spreading the good news aspect as well. Oh, hi. You've reached the halfway point of episode number 23 of Jenny and Paul sell out. Hope you're enjoying our discussion about the various ways to embrace DIY. We are interested in what you have to say about this topic or anything we discuss on the podcast. The podcast website is at selloutpodcast.com where you can find show notes or leave your comment. Tweet us at, at selloutpodcast or Facebook us. Is that a is that a verb? Is that right? Well, like us or something at uh, Facebook dot com slash sellout podcast or rocket old school by sending an email to selloutpodcast at gmail.com we're sorry but our our prodigy mail uh, account no longer works uh, finally it would be hella nice if you would rate us at itunes or stitcher click some uh, stars or write some words any words um, except naughty ones because that wouldn't be hella nice and the ghost of Steve Jobs would disapprove. So, um, well, let's get let's get back to the discussion, shall we? But so, I think all of these events that we've gone to, we've sort of said that the new way to make money, or maybe not make money, but like increase your personal brand, if you will, um, is based on a lot of like individual human contact with your with your audience, you know, like the ability, like people at XOXO might not be as big a fan of that event. If it like South by Southwest turned into a thing where you couldn't actually go up to the people you really liked their work and ask Mm -hmm. them questions. And likewise with all these other events that I've been talking about at XOXO, there is the, there's also the expectation and assumption that you don't necessarily go because you're a fanboy or a fangirl, but because you yourself are making something sure. and there is inspiration and wisdom to be gathered from the other attendees which right, includes ask a legit question yeah which includes the speakers but they uh, also. should also include other people just who have also attended um sure. I, you know which which is a little different than just going and being inspired or going and and enjoying listening to people who you like although i'm sure there are people who do that um 
So that, that, that's just filling it oh. as more of a community event as opposed mm-hmm. to right. Um, well, so I, I think the other interesting counterpoint that's kind of making headlines right now is PAX Fest. Have you heard anything go, coming out of that? No. So PAX Fest is a Penny Arcade conference. Okay. And Penny Arcade is a comic um, that's sort of about video gaming. And they they started this conference for video gaming because they felt there was no real place to go. So there are people coming to it out of, I love this comic. There are people coming to it out of, like, this is now the default video game conference. So this is the you know oh, okay. conference I have to go to. And then it just got so large. I mean, there's an East, there's a West, there's one in Australia, I think there's one somewhere else in the world um so i mean it's huge right and so a lot of people going to this are going for that community around video games and now you know i would say every year there's some controversy around penny arcade where one of the penny arcade guys says something extremely sexist (laughs) um (laughs) like and really really like like i think the most recent one was about like making fun of rape as a joke i mean like really indefensible things right so um there's been a lot of talk around it that i've been reading which is um about can i go to this event where i do not at all in any way participate or enjoy the people who throw it or their product but it's for this community right Mm -hmm. and i think And there's so many people making that distinction who are like, well, yeah, I hate them. And I realize that some of the money I'm I'm putting into this event goes to them. But in actuality, I'm here for this community. Um, Yeah. I I mean, yeah, for that. I mean, my answer is, well, fuck them. Create your (laughs) community. Fuck them totally. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and that's right. I mean, that's the to me, that's that's uh, that's that's the maker's impulse. Right. Um, and that's but I get that if there's nowhere else for you to go for your community, and I, I guess my question the reason I bring it up is these other two examples, you know, XOXO, um, or uh, you know, the boat cruise I went on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that those work for the celebrities involved partially because people are there for the community, like, I'm too busy hanging out with these other people to go bother some famous person, right? You know? Yeah, um, and I do think that makes a difference, but then. I guess this PAX example is one where it's like it gets so large that there are elements of the community that you really hate and you think are offensive and terrible. But that's where creativity happens, uh, you know. And so for me, again, I'm going to call call back to my being involved in independent media and uh, community radio in particular for the last 20 years. And I've seen so many good things come out of that impulse of fuck these guys, right? That basically getting fed up with something and, and who's there or how it's being done. And the, and instead of either just saying, fine, we'll go, we'll just pout or, uh, you know, and, you know, we'll go and pretend we don't hate. Yeah. Or, people. you know, or going and making like symbolic protest gestures. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that because I've also been involved in events where the organizer said, oh, oh, we, we actually want this to be better. Right. And that happens and, and, and things got better. Right. But right. when it doesn't, that people went out and created their own thing, you know. And so although it's largely forgotten here, especially in the States, you know, I was very heavily involved in the independent media center movement in the late 90s, and early 2000s, which which grew out of really was sparked by the battle in Seattle around the WTO protests in 1999, but really spawned a global movement of people saying, no, we don't like how. The, the global media works and we're creating our own and it was great 
And there, I mean, it was difficult, but it was really a lot about how do we do this differently ourselves in a way which is supportive and organized, right? And in some ways, it was so successful that it obsoleted itself. That's my view. And independent media centers still exist. The one I was involved in in Urbana, Champaign, Illinois still exists because it, um, the organizers there, you know, bought a building and sort of turned it from being part of sort of the bigger network, which it still is, but turned it more into like a local institution, which is one way to go. But I say it obsoleted itself because part of it was the, oh, anyone can publish anything, which in 1999 <laughs> was revolutionary. In 1999, there was no YouTube, there was no blogger, there was no Tumblr, there was no Twitter. The closest thing you had in 1999 was, uh, you know, something like GeoCities, where you can make a really, really awful website. And so the idea that there would be a, a site where you could not only just post any news article, but you could actually post audio and video, you know, despite bandwidth limitations... And have it treated like news and treated like, you know, information that had value was actually really significant. And when it was, of course, mixed with, um, you know, at the time what would have been called anti-globalization politics, um, you know, it really created a new news source. But then, of course, you know, the, the idea, I'm not saying it was stolen, but it sort of became now at the point it's mundane, right? You know, you have... Well you know and 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 so but it was all about creating this new thing it was all about okay so you know sure it doesn't mean we should it doesn't mean we leave our critique behind it doesn't mean that we we stop being critical of the representation of you know minorities or women in 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 the mainstream media and that it's not simply sufficient for us to go create our own but that that is still a really great response to go create your own thing i agree that so these things are sort of the out pouring of that you know they Mm -hmm. we have created our own thing but i guess my question is you know or not my question but uh how do we uh, even though we've realized like oh we have to create our own thing oh this is the only way to success oh we have 10 people talking at our event about that um still uh people's impulses you know um well i have a really successful podcast i have a really successful this thing i did myself but you know, uh, I had offered a TV show <laughs> on a major network, right? <laughs> right, which I get at this point is also just about paying the bills, which I totally get. But um, at some point, even though we're these super alternative venue situations are coming about and people love them and they're very successful, um, I feel like a large portion of the time spent by organizers is getting it to the acceptable media level, like the the old media level, you know, um, sort of partnering with those old media things. And I guess my question is like, how do we, how do we make, how do we make that stop? Maybe is maybe my opinion. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure what my opinion is yet. I think that uh, why, why is that still such a, a deep longing for us when we, we all have acknowledged hundreds of times that that's not where the money is actually going to come from. Or the attention. I wonder if it's to some extent generational. So let's sort of take uh, one example, Mark Marin, right? Mark Marin, you know, sort of, and I think he and a lot of people, comedians, you know, around his age, so, you know, hovering uh, on, on, you know, within 10 years of 40, plus or minus, 
it seems like they got into the business right to be comedians and to be to make their living as comedians which means touring but also means television maybe means movies it means some kind of ambition towards these things and a lot of them weren't able to do it because you know a lot of them grew up or were uh got interested in comedy or started their careers during the so-called comedy boom which happened kind of in the in the ni- 1990s when sta- when like every little town had a had a stand up uh club or in and, and, and big towns had 12 or 14 of them you know and that kind of crashed in the late 90s early 2000s and the opportunities that you know were fairly easy to make a living went away and you know and then of course there's always the sorting out there um of who will make it and who won't and so a lot of them turn to smaller media and independent media sort of out of not desperation but out of a lack of other better choices and and it's worked out for a lot of them but i don't think for a lot of them and mark maron's very uh, i think a very big example I don't think he it's not like he did podcasting because he didn't have ambition to sure to be on television or movies. He did podcasting because that shit didn't work out. Sure. And I do. I do. I agree with you. I do think it's generally. And even Jesse Thorne. Right. Who Who is, yeah. you know, like 30, I guess he's young, um, who is the man behind Maximum Fun right behind sure. this cruise, you know, obviously very successful in, in this sort of DIY realm. He wanted to be in public radio. Right. And I mean, I think like there was even some talk like so um, his flagship show has just been picked up for public radio in L.A., the city it comes from. It's been in lots of other markets. But um, I was talking to someone who worked for the business and she said, oh, it's it was it's been really hard because for like 10 years, basically, people are like, oh, you work for this public radio show. So when can I listen to it? And the answer was like, well, you can't You kind of have to download it, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because even in their own market, like they didn't have a show. So, I mean, I guess I do agree that it's generational. I think, though, with these events, the idea that you're making events and products you know, and by products, I mean sort of artistic products around, around community, around, you know, this idea of the long tail, which is this totally accepted thing now, um, around the idea that like, you know, the five people who like my thing will find it on the internet. Um, but yet still the first question at some, something like this is, you know, at, at the first question at a, an event I go to that I can't even explain to most people, uh, um, <laughs> because it's such a weird small community um, is how many people listen to your right. podcast. Right. I mean, that's the thing for me where it's like, oh, but... Well, it's because we're always judging ourselves against other people, right? I mean, that's still part of it. And I think that podcasting... The weird thing about podcasting is while it, there's a community, it's a very solitary exercise. I yeah. mean, and so... Right. You don't really do it with other people. You do it with your host, with your co-host, or you do it with your with someone who you interview, but you don't really do it with other podcasters. And it... it... Oh, but I would disagree with that because I feel like there's such a an overlap, you know, in the podcast community of like, oh, I'm going to be on everyone's... I'm a guest on everyone's podcast. Right. There is that. But it's only... But that, that gets even super that's only a little tiny piece of, of the podcast sure. world, right? Yeah, sure. That's not podcasting, that is this group of podcasters who all generally live in and around LA, maybe New York, and all know each other, mostly through other professional connections. 
Um, I mean, radio has always been that way, right? You know, and and it, and it is this very similar sort of way in that you 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 have competition that's both outright and not outright. And yeah, you care about audience and things like that because how else do you measure whether you're successful? How else sure. do you measure what you do is worthwhile? And, you know, I mean, I run, I mean, so I have a website, radiosurvivor.com. We care about our audience. We care about our hits. We don't really care I about it from the standpoint of, of sharing it with other people. But to some extent, we care because it does really, we do try to make some money with it. And if we but don't I have do hits, think there's we don't make money. Between uh, caring about your audience and saying, let's make this thing for, I, I mean, I think you can care about your audience and not say, uh, I guess I think it's more caring to 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 say like, hey, this is about this community. Let's not screw over this community by, you know, all of a sudden ha- inviting three thousand people to this sure. event. And and I think that's tough, right? Because it, it part of it is is it, is that it's not in a vacuum, right? Right. Because you may be dealing with other forces who have expectations of you as well. Um, so if you are, uh, I, you know, they were fairly explicit about it at XO that they said that so much of what they're able to do is because they have sponsors and they said that they didn't want to have the usual sponsors where it's more like they, where they slap their name over everything. And it's about, you know, you know, it's the uh, Red Bull, right? Party or whatever. Um, so they, they really had to have fine companies who were willing to sort of fork over some money in the spirit of supporting this thing without getting caught up in all the other stuff. And that was difficult. But they also said that without that money, it would be difficult to make sort of the parties and to make all the social stuff as cool as it was on top of the conference part of it. And so when you and that, and that, I think that is for so many in the conference world, by and large, you are it's sponsorships that make sure you're going to break even and never mind make money that it's uh, conference fees are very rarely sufficient to cover your costs um, because you there's an upper threshold of what people will pay um, and then once you bring in sponsors and you bring in people who see it more as a promotional opportunity now you have to you you know you are required to deal with their expectations as well and and i think that's that's what what makes it difficult right that's where you know and i'm not saying that you can't do it i mean i've been to many uh conferences that are not sponsored and such um, that are niche and are about certain communities but as a result they also require that people who participate go in with different assumptions well i do also wonder like at what point uh large larger companies are going to um, think about their return on investment for podcast sponsorship or these sorts of events. Well, they are thinking about it. Oh, oh absolutely. Are, but I mean, I feel like Mailchimp sponsors everything, right? Mailchimp can't be making that much money in return. <laughs> like, I, I would no. I, my guess is, my guess is that they are because of the way that they run yeah. that business and because they work through all the the, the affiliate codes and the discount codes and all of that. They know exactly what's coming in from each from each sponsorship, and so and I think what they've done is they is is in some ways the podcasting gives them better or more accurate estimates of return on investment than they would get with old media. And that's why companies like Squarespace and 
MailChimp do less old media and more new media. Right. Well, I mean, I think also the those. I mean, it it just is makes sense to do a new media thing if you're. Mm-hmm an online right. business i mean it doesn't make sense but i guess but i mean squarespace is doing hulu ads now so yeah well and again a hulu ad is cheaper than a broadcast ad sure well and also more targeted to their more targeted audience. they can right in fact they you know there's a lot of data on the back end that can be used to target that ad um although i, I will say Tulu's pretty good at it i've been watching uh, that metal show on vh1 online they're very uh-huh. bad at it yeah, well, it's it's so hard to watch online. You have to like stalk it, right? But the advertisements uh-huh. that are just the regular VH1 advertisements. Well, and and for that metal show, it, it was uh, an ad that runs all the time is a, is for Love's diapers, <laughs> and 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 you know, and so not to say that metalheads don't have <laughs> kids, but the the ad is uh, the premise is you know first time mother. And she's all hypersensitive and, and trying to do everything right and everything else. Like you. Yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and uses some other diaper. Then it's and then on the second kid, she's very blasé, very laissez-faire, but she's learned to use loves. And I'm like, I don't think this is the right demographic. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure makes, this is not the right demographic. It does not seem like... Because if you watch that metal show on television, you will not see those advertisements. Yeah. So, I, I'm, you know, but anyway, that that's a complete digression well, from saying well, but that. but I mean, I think... So I spoke with someone who uh, runs advertising on a lot of podcasts on this cruise. And uh, he was talking about the, the podcast that most... Um, is most successful for that for them and um the the reason why i think they're most successful is not only because it's very targeted but also because um the way the advertise the advertisements are like integrated into the show in both like yeah yeah so it's like um, old-timey radio exactly exactly and we actually brought that up as an example however because they're so integrated and funny and like um sometimes about him the advertiser to, to some extent he said that he is is not willing to show his big bosses those ads because he feels like they'll think it's not real advertisement. Oh, okay. It's making fun of so um so I mean I think that was what was interesting to me was that it's the most successful ad campaign for obvious reason. If you listen to the show, it's so integrated into the show in a way that's not offensive or it's not like pulling the wool over the mm-hmm. the listeners eyes it's hilarious and awesome and totally relevant i mean i think an example is we use that product for our podcast as well um i mean it's just totally integrated into the community and the the that podcast but that's um, how that's how howard stern used to do it when exactly, he was doing commercial radio example right with oh right i mean and for people who i mean you know and part of this this goes back to before howard was nationally syndicated, so we're going back twenty years. And when Snapple was a regional yeah. iced tea and fruit drink in New York, and not not a nationwide product, um, you know they took a leap of faith with him. And but Howard right did not give them a thirty second spot or a, or a thirty second read. He gave a I'm drinking the iced tea, and this you know I really like this iced tea because it doesn't taste like crap like all the other products. And whatever else, and then you know, and he might have a stripper in and pour Snapple all over, right? And yeah, all sorts no, of ways that they really might not want associated with their product. But of course, if you know what Howard relied upon was an audience that was rabidly 
Ro Howard, really into him. And if he, in, 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 in those days, for the most part, he tried very much only to shill products that he really, really liked, that he really, really could endorse. Um, and I think that's the same thing we're seeing with the podcasters, that, you know, it's it's not only that they have these sponsors paying the money, but that they actually, the hosts really like the product. They can really, and you, we've, he, I right. hear on this other this podcast that you're speaking of, often they'll say, I like this product, this product, boy, they should advertise with us. <laughs> right. But I mean, I feel like the, that example where that person who sells the advertisement to that podcast in a, the best possible way, it's the best possible advertisement is afraid to show that advertisement right. to I mean that is the thing which killed me. I mean I, I and I I'm glad you brought up Howard Stern because it's very similar. I mean I feel like the idea that um you know what product wants to be associated with this and even though um you know that company should be thrilled that that's how that that um advertisement is going out, they probably wouldn't be. Um and I mean, I think the community aspect earlier that that we were talking about is the same thing with Howard Stern. You know, I think he leveraged that in a really great way where, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, I know this community will go with me, so I'm going to go to this place and do whatever I want. And yeah, you know what? It might mean that way fewer people come with me because who's going to buy Sirius or whatever. Um, but that intentional kind of uh coalescing of of that community was something that he was more i mean he also was interested in his own personal stuff but but i mean like the idea was make the product in a different way that made appeal to more people and definitely would appeal to his bosses or stay with your community right well and and you know and, and howard did and didn't you know yeah, um right. but it i think there will always be this tension right um i, I just watched this documentary uh it came out last year um, called Radio Unnameable, which is about a radio show that's been on late night uh, New York City on WBAI, which is a non-commercial station owned by Pacifica. Um, it's been a freeform show since the early 60s. And, you know, freeform when there, when the, the idea didn't exist and the, the host, Bob Fast, much of it is, sure, he played, you know, music and interesting stuff, but he was, because of the where, where he was, you know, much of the burgeoning downtown folk scene, you know, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Etc. would come by, and he was friends with the Yippies, he was friends with Abby Hoffman and people like this. But, you know, it's hard to remember that in that time, these people were not known. They were not celebrities. They were not, they were known to a small, they were niche people, right? They had fans, but they weren't, you know, they were not uh, nationally known. And Bob, you know, inadvertently, in a lot of ways, created a community, Right. Because and it sort of came together for the first time because they decided as a joke to have a fly-in and have people come to uh, JFK. Of course, this is the 1960s, and and thousands of people showed up and they had a party at JFK, right? And that's when they sort of realized what was going on. Um, now this is a non-commercial station, so you know they, it made its you know it, it it and had the public radio model before there was public radio. It made all of its money uh, by listener contributions. And Bob was also actively resented at the station um, to the extent to which he was uh, fired uh, in the uh, in the 80s, in part because he built up this community that made it seem as though he, he was not part of the fabric of the station, that he he had his own thing. Right. That it was that it was sort of the Bob Vasho and the Bob. It's his own thing. And he's really not part of the rest of the station. So, you know, and, and so there's always that tension as well. And I don't think. 
you know, from what I know of the history separately, as well as from the documentary, which is, you know, which is positive, it puts him in positive light and doesn't put too many warts on display. I don't think he was looking to build that. I think it was accidental. I think he was doing what he wanted to do and this, this came together. And of course, once he had it and he enjoyed it and benefited from it, you know, personally and professionally, of course he didn't want to give it up, you know, and, and I don't know whether he wanted to grow it or not, but he definitely wanted to maintain it. And there you have, you know, working in this other arena where that was a threat to other people. And I mean, that's sort of, we don't want to get into it, sort of the history of a lot of community radio, especially sure. BAI and Pacifica and such. But now, I mean, because we now have that option for that that guy or any other guy to be like, okay, well, F off. I'm just going to do this by myself. Right, yeah. Whatevs. So I guess why are we – so in that scenario, now that we have that, why are we still looking for that sort of approval that this is on a real station or this is on a – Yeah, it's I mean, tough. The, the I idea agree. that anyone – well, I mean, not, not only just because like, oh, we, we all need – you know, some sort of uh, approval, but also because we all know that it's a totally re- like failing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the idea that anyone is psyched that their their show got picked up for public radio is sort of an interesting thing to me because one, like, yes, while it is a measure of success, two, it's sort of a dwindling, mar- you know what I mean? I think it's weird to me. It's like someone being like, I'm really psyched that my I, I, that my uh, horse carriages are totally going to be sold, and all the stores now. Well, that's great, but no one buys horse carriages. Well, so. public radio is not a, is actually thriving, but uh, sure. I mean, I, I I don't mean to dis on public radio. Yeah. I love public radio, but I'm saying like it's 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 a medium that you're kind of, that the whole point is that we don't need that anymore. It's hard to give up old assumptions, I guess, and and as well, I mean, part of it. You know, and I don't think we we should discount the extent to which, you know, it's not just the professional milieu, but, you know, it's probably your personal milieu, right? And, you, you know, you're Jesse Thorne. You, your parents might not think you're legit until you're on public right. radio, right? And and while we can all say, well, screw that, I think we, you know, I, I, I you know, having had <laughs> recently had a conversation with my grandfather on his birthday, and all he wanted to know was how, you know, if I'm actually making any money. Right. right. You know, and so he knows that I do all this stuff, but, you know, right. are you actually making any money? You know, and, and that's because he cares. Right. It's not because sure. you know, my, grandfather yeah, no. <laughs> my grandfather's 93 years old. OK. Uh, but, you know, and so I, I'm not at all offended. But oh, God, no. Right. And, and uh, you know, but that is that is still a dominant narrative. It is still dominant in American life. And, you know, I in in, in the last 20 some years of my life, I have outside of work engaged with more i've been in independent media so i have accepted and surrounded myself with people who sort of accept the premise that you do these things uh because you have a desire to communicate a desire to build a desire to to create community but that is not driven by size inherently driven by size money and reach um but that's you know it's called alternative and independent media for a reason because it differs so much from what is still the predominant model. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I wonder if it does come out of the idea that um, these were once successful, I mean, at least far more successful than they are now, um, money-making. Right. And, like, the idea that your favorite band 
who you really like and who is making it, whatever that means to them, um, you know, enough to make albums. Uh, signs with a major label, you know, of course, that's the iconic way to sell out. Um, has has been seen as sort of negative for a very long time, right? The mm-hmm. idea that um, you would you, that your favorite band would do that, but why is it different for your favorite podcast, or why is it different? You know, well, I don't think it is. I think there probably are people, but I do think I do think that people are are far more positive. I mean, the the amount of people who pimp the Mark Maron television show, for example, on their podcast, well. But, for obvious reason, as you know, someone in the podcast community did something awesome, but like because I think in that podcast community there was never was the there was never indie righteousness, right? I, again, I, I think that that community did not come together out of the same punk and DIY ethos as a Fugazi or Bikini Kill, right? I, I, I so I do think there's just it's formative in that way, whereas at the if you if amy goodman who create who does a, a a daily one hour you know news program independent news program which is podcasted but started out of course as a community radio show if she were to get picked up by nbc <laughs> right that People would be a problem, right <laughs> yeah. so you know but I think and i think there are probably now. podcasters who are doing something right now who have an audience who would be pissed off if they if they really left the podcast universe or in some cases might be pissed if they just simply started running advertising right but i do think it's interesting that in i think not just fugazi i think it's pretty much any band at this point sort of not any band but like most bands the idea of getting a label is not a positive no that's i mean i don't think no i don't think that's true i think you're talking about a very small subsection i think you're talking about bands that that are independent by choice rather than by circumstances. I think all bands are independent by not choice for a very long time. Well, that's what I'm saying. But but, (laughs) no, but there are bands that are independent by choice and there are bands that are independent by circumstances. And those who are independent by circumstances, right, often embrace the opportunity to sign with a label and do these things. And the ones who are by choice do not, right? And and then, of course, we know the stories of, you know, bands that had to face that choice and you know whether it's a nirvana or a sonic youth who decided to go with a major label or a band like rancid which which decided to turn down cbs uh columbia back in the in the 90s um and stay independent right uh, despite whatever offers right so i mean i don't think it's as simple as that and i don't you know even in in the music sure. realm but that doesn't mean that there isn't a significant section of those realms in which people are independent by choice or, or, you know, I guess I wonder if though, uh, music seems like it's, it's just far more of a, um, I mean, I think at this point now, probably the kids don't really know what label you're on or care. I think, I think that's a lot more of it. I mean, I would say, well, I don't think they ever did. I mean, again, Uh, I think we're we're talking from the perspective of people, you and I, of people who, who have understood, who have been part of a music scene and been in, 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 and loved music um, that was outside the mainstream. And so part of that was understanding the political economy of the music business. Sure. Well, and, but I think, also, I wonder if music is this way now because it's for a much longer time than a lot of other industries has been um, non-profitable for the artists. Uh, I mean, I, in in a way that I think, like, I don't know, even even writing a book 
has has been still fairly profitable for the author until extremely recently. No, no, that's not true at all. That is not true at all. Uh, writing a book has almost never been profitable for the author unless you unless if you're a famous author right I sure guess, fine that's what i'm trying to well, say if you're yeah. a famous musician yeah. it's still profitable to record and, and release music well except i think there are a lot of famous musicians more i think there are more famous musicians who have the story where they're like well we actually didn't get any money out of any well, of these albums that's well i mean that's that is not entirely true they all got money okay. out of those albums they well, got a, except they got screwed out of it by other people. Sure. Well, no, well, no. And, what, right. What it is is that the, they got their advances. Sure. Right. Which they were given to to cover expenses, pay for the recording, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most and a lot of young bands don't understand the contracts that they sign, right. have no one explain it to them. Suddenly or get they handed, have a, a shady person get, who is go between. Right. I think get get handed hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. and, you know, and don't realize that oh it's going to be a long time until we see another dollar right so i mean you know it's it, i don't think it's as simple as that and and I, plenty I, of musicians have made that money but um at tech fest northwest they they did several uh uh presentations and panels about music and technology that i was that's why i went was really for that and so uh there's musician dave allen who was the bass player in a british post-punk band called uh, gang of four um, he lives in Portland and he's been working kind of like in interactive for the last 20 years. And so, and he's very pro like this, the, the he's basically his, he, what he talks about is, yeah, I think there's more opportunities now for musicians who want to take advantage of things, but it basically kept, you know, he was on one panel where there's one guy basically saying, you know, major label, screw you, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're screwed. You're fucked. And he kept saying, yeah, mate, it's been that way for yeah since the beginning of time so there's nothing new there so let's not let's quit kind of let's quit bitching about that and let's make the next thing and and he said that you know aside from uh their upfront advances he said gang of four made no money from their record label until uh they were able to buy back (laughs) the rights to their to their music which you know they had sold to the label back in the early 80s they were able to buy it back. They re-recorded their greatest hits and went on a tour and sold it. He said, we'd never seen money, really, besides our advances until then. He goes, so there's your lesson. You know, and then there was also a lot of discussion. And people, was a woman who runs uh, Bikini Kill Records and had been working at uh, Kill Rockstars Records, talking about labels and whether they're useful or not, and basically saying, look... A label does all sorts of things for you that most musicians aren't prepared to do for themselves. And that's the problem. You know, so yeah. you can find some of that on the internet and do a lot of it, but don't 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 be fooled. You will still be spending two thirds of your time on promotion, audience building, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and one third being a musician. And the thing is most musicians want to spend two thirds or eighty percent of their time being musicians. And that's where that's where the problem is. And I think that's the problem for a podcaster, whomever it's. And, and you that's know, why podcast networks exist too. You know? well, and that, and, right. And, you know, and that's the thing I think that, you know, a lesson, you know, that you can draw from someone like a Marin is that, yeah, he had to spring up and make this podcast his full-time job. And only a part of it was sitting down behind the microphone and making the podcast. Um, and that's a conundrum, which I think all artists or all people who make things are up against. And that's why, Sure, it's great to have television networks 
and producers and directors and managers and uh, labels because they're all these people who are there to help you, you know, ostensibly make your art and make some money from your art, even if sometimes the contracts and everything aren't for, aren't always structured in your best interest. Um, you know, but then if you give up that structure and you give up that, it's the same thing as giving up a full-time job versus becoming self-employed. Now you, now you are responsible for it, right? And, yeah. and and it's a lot. It's a lot of responsibility. It's, a lot it's hard out there for a pimp. It is. Pimping ain't <laughs> yes. easy. I, well, and that's I, I mean I think that's the thing is like no well but maybe inherently in podcasting you knew you had to do that because it was it like was born sure. independently um, so it's a little less annoying to people because they knew that that was what they had to do if if they wanted to make if they wanted to make it big if they wanted to make a living if they right. wanted to turn right, it right. into you know and and I, I take it as sincere when Marin talks about the fact that he didn't start podcasting because. He thought it would be make him a living. He started right. podcasting because he had nothing else to do. Right. Um, and that's, I mean, that's why a lot of people start bands. That's why a lot of people become artists. And, and not merely because they didn't have anything else to do, but also because that's what they were good at. Um, but we still don't. Right. But we still, as a culture, you know, in, 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 in North America, in the U.S. in particular, we don't. We don't support our artists and our innovators and people very well, right? We, there, you know, we're, we're we're pretty bad at it, you know, to the extent to which, you know, I've talked to plenty of, of experimental and jazz musicians in the U.S. who go on tour in Europe because they get paid, right? Because there well, is, even if it's not great state sponsorship, there's state sponsorship for the arts, and they know if they show up to this venue and they play it, they have a guarantee waiting for them. But I mean, as we said on previous episodes, why is it not good enough? for the 30 people who are super psyched about your podcast to listen to your podcast and then you have a separate job. Right. Sure. And then I think that is fine. I mean, to me, that's No, fine. obviously we think that's fine. But I mean, I think it's interesting to me that that hasn't come over in the same way guy who noodles in his basement and has a local well, band. People, eh, people still look down on that too, though. I mean, I, I don't, don't, don't discount the extent to which that person is, you know, is derided. Right, oh, yeah, derided, sure. But I mean, I guess uh, the idea that, like, if you start a podcast, it now has to have. I, I don't know I, if I I've think... heard that. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I've experienced or heard that idea. I, I So, I'm, I mean, I, I, that is not a, a ethos that I think I've had a lot of contact with. I guess my feeling that, um, you know, when you start a band because you're tooling around with your friends, no matter what age group you are, um, do you think that people ask how many people went to your show? Yeah. Is that the first question about not, your... Well, no, not if you're tooling around with your friends, but right. if you are talking to a bunch of other musicians who do the same thing... Sure, of course. Yes, yeah, and that's okay. the difference, right? No, I mean, I honestly... I mean, I've had someone ask me how many listeners we have, but only after a fairly long conversation about what we do. Right. Uh, right. I haven't had any sort of people who are not podcasters. Yeah, and maybe that's... That and that's a, probably a better point in that, like, I... I I guess um, it is only other podcasters who have asked me that. Yeah, because they're concerned about it themselves and they kind of want a metric because everyone is because it's such so new. And because for various reasons, no one's sharing listening numbers very much. There's no ratings. There's no Arbitron. Right. And what I should have said was no one. No one cares about us. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No one cares about us. Jenny. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. No one cares about us. What that's a great the, place 
to end it. Yeah. To sum it up. There you go. Nobody cares about us. Nobody, Nobody cares, cares about, about you. us. And we're fine with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, do we want to squeeze in uh, yeah, things we like? I, I'm not sure what I like. You, you go first. Um, I have been going to recommend a podcast, which is the number one podcast on iTunes, which is sort of a um, come from behind out of nowhere podcast called Night Vale or Welcome to Night Vale. Um, I've even just if heard about it. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Even if you're not a fan of podcasts, you only listen to this because you know one of us or something. Um, it's great. It's kind of like Twin Peaksy, David Lynchy. It's it's like it's a community radio station. Um, it, the the pretense is it's a community radio program um, in a town where extremely bizarre science fictiony things happen all the time. And basically, in a couple of episodes, it went from like no one listening to it to you know it being the number one podcast on iTunes and um it has uh no advertisements it has um a main plot device that is a gay romance so it has all these like kind of weird elements that no matter what you sort of like it it has it it has a music it has a weather report which is a, just a musician playing an awesome song um and uh it's it's just it's phenomenal and some of them are eight minutes some of them are 20 minutes it's it doesn't really follow a lot of the conventions that i think even podcasting sort of sets out for like this is a success you know um it doesn't really have continuous i guess it does have some continuous storylines sort of new things are revealed as as the story goes on so it's kind of like lost i would suggest listening to it in order um but i don't think it would be totally you wouldn't but listening to it out of order, I don't think it would hurt you, but it is sort of um, more stuff gets revealed as it goes on. Very good. That's um, awesome. Mine is uh, Aardvark Hot Sauce. <laughs> Those are just words you put together. That's not a thing. It is called, no, it is Aardvark Hot Sauce. It's made here in Portland. Oh, it's actually so hot it's, sauce. It's an actual hot sauce. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's delicious. I thought it was your new jazz combo. Yes, my new. <laughs> yes. Well, they're going on tour with be stickered urinal. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, it, I know it's lame, uh, and I think you can get it by mail order. If, um, but it's sold all around here, and it's it's an habanero based sauce, but it's got uh, roasted vegetables in it, so it's it's got a fair amount of heat. Um, I would say it's a little hotter than sriracha by comparison but it's very very flavorful um I, i've been putting on everything um, have you tried their garlic black bean sauce no i didn't even know that existed i went to their website and apparently they have a jerk sauce and a garlic black bean sauce no i'm just sticking with the regular old aardvark i, I don't okay. i'm not a guy who wants like 19 hot sauces <laughs> all right i'm not going to be that guy and, I, and i'm not you're not artisanal hot sauce man no i'm not actually and i don't want like the ones that are just you know how paint how much pain can you take i don't want the right. pure capsaicin or whatever ass on fire or whatever because um, <laughs> i don't want my ass to be on fire simple enough and you're focusing focusing your artisanal things on it's like bitters or something yeah it's very tender down there um i understand so but i i you know when i find so i like sriracha quite a bit and i've been eating I, i've been eating sriracha for like uh, 15 years um, I like that was such a hipster comment. Oh well, you know, thank you very much. <laughs> Look at Portland is rubbing off on you. You, you yeah, I didn't live in Portland then. Damn it. I know, but the, but you like you had to point out that you are you were an OG. I'm Sriracha OG. Fan. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I like Tapatio. 
which is another uh-huh. one that I, I've liked a long time. And, you know, so there's not a lot of space there. So to add even a third hot sauce was, was kind of a big deal. Although, you know, I often like to have a Chipotle hot sauce going around, but I, there's no particular one I like. If it's, I'll eat Tabasco, I'll eat Cholula or whatever. I, and I'm not very discerning on the Chipotle. I'm a jalapeno hot sauce person. Yeah, I like, not, I mean, I like it's fine. hot sauce. Yeah, not a big fan. I, uh, I'm not a big I know. fan. I'm going to, you know, maybe you can't handle it. Maybe it's, uh... maybe I don't know. Maybe I can't. It's the alternative, the, the jalapeno hot sauce. But try, try some, try some of the aardvark. Um, it is aardvark. really pretty fantastic, and yeah, they should advertise with us. They should. It's secret aardvark, Yeah, we should talk about how it doesn't make your ass go on fire. It does not. <laughs> it's the yeah. perfect advertising. It does not make you shit your pants. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, if if they don't want to advertise with us now, I don't, I, don't, I, yeah. I can't imagine what kind of crack they're we smoking. We do need to sell out because we don't, I mean, it is ironic that we are a podcast. For our our millions or tens of listeners, you pick right. which, somewhere in between, uh, um, we need to sell though out. Though we are a sellout podcast, we have not really sold out in any in any way. No. We need to work on that. i got to get on that. No. Well, that's that's that. why I'm unemployed now or semi-employed or whatever yes. it is I'm doing now. All right, Jenny, thank you. Thank you, Paul.